Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Recast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader, audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. All right. So we have game three of the Western Conference Finals in the books. And all I can say is your move, Monty. Clippers coach Ty Lue made yet another adjustment, actually a couple, that resulted in a vital and decisive game three victory, 106-92 now reducing the Suns' lead in the Western Conference Finals to two games to one and putting the onus on Lou's Phoenix counterpart, that's Monty, to find a solution to the hitch that Ty put in the Suns' offensive giddy-up. If you watched FS1's Speak for Yourself with myself, Marcellus Wiley, and Emmanuel Acho, and I know this might sound self-serving, but I'm going to take a leap of faith and say, no one else predicted or even discussed that the return of point guard Chris Paul from COVID protocol would actually play into the Clippers' hands the way we did. It's a counterintuitive line of thinking, to be sure. Paul was an MVP candidate this year because of his effectiveness as a floor leader, and through the first two series of these playoffs, he was just as effective, getting into the paint for his mid-range jumper, or floating lobs to DeAndre, DeAndre Ayton to finish at the rim, and just being an absolute pest at the defensive end. Lou made the masterful move of putting Nicholas Batum, a true unsung hero for the Clippers throughout these playoffs, as a defensive weapon on Paul. Batum's length clearly bothered Paul, and allowed him to have whoever was guarding Ayton not to help on Paul, but stay attached to the Suns' big man. As much as Paul and Devin Booker struggled, 
going a combined 10 for 40 from the floor and 3 for 14 from three-point range. It was Aiton's minus 25 that was really eye-opening. Aiton finished with the same strong efficiency, making 9 of his 13 shots for 18 points. But for the first time in this series, Avica Zubac clearly got the better of him, getting to the line for 10 free throws, making 9 of them, and getting 6 of his 16 rebounds off the offensive glass. Paul George was still erratic as a ball handler, committing six turnovers, but he got back to being a beast on the boards, pulling down 15 rebounds, five more than his combined total in games one and two. That has been the formula that has the Clippers where they are. George making sure the Suns don't get more than one shot on any trip down the floor, committing himself to that. Now, it didn't help the Suns that Cameron Payne, who had filled in for Paul so admirably in the first two games, rolled his ankle in the second quarter and was limited to four minutes. He didn't even play in the second half. But even before he got hurt, he clearly had earned the Clippers' respect and attention. Paul George fought over a screen and defended him as hard as he would Devin Booker, and that wasn't the case in either of the first two games. It's one of the clearest differences between last year's Clippers team and this one. They take pride in their defense and are comfortable going for stretches when their shots are not falling, confident that they can stay in the game by doubling their effort at the other end and being willing to do so. Last year's team put the effort in defensively when their offense was clicking and everyone was eager to get a stop so they could score again. I'd argue the Clippers are actually better right now when their offense isn't purring as it was for the most part in games one and two. They were happy to trade baskets with the Suns in those first two games, perhaps thinking they could out-execute them down the stretch with CP3 and protocol. They didn't do that earlier tonight. The Suns shot 55% in game one, 50% in game two, but only 39% in game three. Lou clearly understands the same thing that I do. That PG trying to do his best KD or Devin Booker imitation, as we saw him try last year in the bubble, that is simply trying to be a scorer, is not the answer. If you've heard Lou talk about what he wants from Paul George, he has said that he wants to, him to be aggressive, which is exactly right. It's also sometimes misinterpreted as, I need him to go score. They need PG to look to attack but not necessarily look for his shot every time. He led them with 27 points, but it took 26 shots to get them. His biggest contribution was simply playing dogged defense, as the entire Clippers team did, and getting to the free throw line where the Clippers outscored the Suns 20-12. to That's leading the team by doing the dirty work, by committing yourself to defense, by being aggressive and getting to the free throw line. There wasn't one particular area that the Clippers outdid the Suns. They just won the battle in a host of categories. Free throws, three-pointers, 12 to 10. And of course, with George setting the example, we have to do the dirty work. We have to get dug in. We have to defend. When your best player, your most talented player, is willing to make that sacrifice, is willing to put his energy in that part of the game, 
the rest of the team has no choice but to follow suit. A Devin Booker playing with a mask to protect the broken nose he suffered from the inadvertent headbutt from Patrick Beverly in Game 2 clearly affected him. There was just a hint of hesitation as he turned the corner and rose up for his patented patented pull-up jumpers, and I just got the sense that he wasn't seeing the floor as well as he had in the previous games and previous series. I actually thought the Clippers didn't do a good job on him in Game 2 after he broke his nose, putting him on the free-throw line instead of challenging him to make shots in traffic with that broken beak. I know, it's incredibly easy for me to say from my armchair, but it's one of the things that always amazes me. I had the same feeling with how the Bucks played James Harden and his sore hamstring. I'm not suggesting that leaving either Harden or Booker open would be wise, but allowing them a little more airspace than usual, rather than crowding them and risking putting them on the free throw line, would be my approach. You might have to live with a couple of made shots, but I sensed both of them being far more conservative in the way they looked for their shot than they normally would being injured. Patrick Beverly deserves a shout out as well. I've felt for a while now that his histrionics and bluster are not nearly as effective defensively as is sometimes advertised or suggested. But what I appreciate most about him is that he never gives up on a play. And while he has been in and out of the lineup, in and out of the rotation, he has continued to play with the same intensity. If you're bringing the ball up or tracking down a long rebound, you better know where he is because he's looking to sneak in and get a piece of the ball just to keep it alive and disrupt any chance at a clean fast break or possibly even create a second chance opportunity for the Clippers while half your team is already halfway to the other end of the court. It was clear that by frustrating Paul, getting his shoulders and head to drop down the stretch as he was forced into taking another long three or desperation pull-up over Batum's outstretched arms, that the Suns' collective confidence took a hit. Another key switch Ty Lue made in Game 3 was taking Marcus Morris out of the starting lineup. He and Jay Crowder are pretty evenly matched. They're kind of the same player in a lot of ways. But not in Morris's mind. I got the feeling that he considers himself the better player and certainly the better scorer and wanted to prove that point. He wasn't able to. He went 3 for 11 in both games 1 and 2 and perhaps most telling, didn't take a single free throw. It's a different story in game 3. Bringing him off the bench forced Crowder to match up with Paul George, who clearly is too athletic for him and is far more likely to get the benefit of the doubt on a foul call than Morris would, which he did, going to the free throw line seven times and making six of them. It's no accident that Crowder fouled out with just under five minutes to play and the Suns still threatening down by 11. It was one more development that seemed to take the wind out of the sun's sails. Now, before I put a bow on this episode, I want to touch upon the latest developments on the coaching front. 
as I predicted in a podcast a week or so ago. Jason Kidd looks like he'll succeed Rick Carlisle as the Dallas, Ma- Dallas Mavericks head coach. I actually predicted that before Rick Carlisle announced that he was stepping down. I saw him potentially leaving and going elsewhere and Jay Kidd getting that shot if it happened. But it was more pie in the sky, this is what I'd like to see happen, as opposed to believing that Carlisle was actually going to step down. I've also heard that while I thought initially it was because Carlisle knew that he had a landing spot, and I'm sure that on some level he knew that he had a shot or a fallback to go to the Pacers. I thought it more likely that he'd wind up in Boston or potentially Milwaukee if the Bucks didn't get out of the second round and they moved on from Mike Budenholzer. What I'm told is that Carlisle stepped down not because he knew he had a better option waiting for him, but the idea forwarded by the piece by The Athletic that he was basically kowtowing to Luka Doncic and Bob Volgaris, the front office analytics expert that Cuban has employed at least until this summer, is what really got to Carlisle. He is a very prideful coach, and the idea that he was doing someone else's bidding just to hold on to a job would not sit well with him. With Kidd in Dallas, or anticipated to be in Dallas, that leaves only a few other openings. Now, Chauncey Billups appears to be the likeliest candidate to get the Portland job, and the latest I'm hearing is that Jacques Vaughn is the leading candidate to get the New Orleans Pelicans job. That leaves Orlando as the one open vacancy, and I haven't heard of a clear favorite, though I did hear from someone who predicted Ime Odoka in Boston and Carlisle in Indiana to me say that Kenny Atkinson is a very possible choice for the Magic. All of this leaves Becky Hammond and the prospect of her being the first woman's head coach in NBA history going unfulfilled. That should not come as a surprise. As much as the NBA might be perceived as progressive, it's going to take a truly gutsy franchise to pull the trigger on that move. It will surely win the press conference. But then comes the hard part. Convincing the players and the staff that her hiring was more than a publicity stunt. And how do you do that? The Blazers' interest, as I've been told and has been reported elsewhere, was driven by owner Jody Allen, the late Paul Allen's sister. This is what you have to understand about coaching in the NBA. Drawing up plays and the X's and O's are the easiest part of the job. Anybody can go in in an interview and fill up the whiteboard with what they run and how they play and matchups, etc. It's the ability to hold players accountable, dealing with the ideas and demands of the GM and owner and star player that distinguish a successful coach from one that can't get anything done. Nate Bjorken, who only lasted one year in Indiana, understands the game. He just didn't know how to talk to his staff and his players and get them to believe in him. He got on the wrong side 
a couple too many of the top players with the Pacers. David Fisdell had the same issue in New York. From everyone I've talked to, no one questions Hammond's ability to devise a game plan or draw up plays. It's all the other interpersonal challenges that come with the job that have teams hesitant to be the first to test whether she's capable of them. I assure you, the teams who considered her explored through back channels who on the Spurs roster she worked with or developed a rapport with. And simply having the Spurs stamp of approval isn't what it once was. Short of a star player telling his GM he wants to play for Hammond, her best shot remains succeeding Greg Popovich in San Antonio. If she has the ability to connect with stars, motivate complimentary players, and deal with the front office and ownership, they would have the greatest comfort level. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just telling you how it is. It will be also interesting to see if Carlisle remains the president of the Coaches Association. He has taken issue with teams in the past for not giving young black head coaching candidates an opportunity to at least interview. Yet, he was hired by the Pacers without anyone else getting consideration. And that, by the way, is a sign that Larry Bird, who is, he is very close with and is, I believe, still listed as a consultant with the Pacers, still has a voice in that organization. But I can tell you within NBA circles, the hiring of Carlisle is viewed as highly hypocritical, both on his part as well as the Pacers. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I have a a good idea of how many people are listening to this podcast. The numbers are really good, and I thank all of you for that. But I also know that the number of ratings that we've received are not anywhere close to the number of people that are actually listening. So if you would do me a solid and take a minute and rate the show, leave me a comment, it would be much appreciated. We turn now back to the Eastern Conference, where we have Game 2 of the Conference Finals between the Hawks and the Bucks, and we get to find out whether the Bucks have learned their lessons from Game 1 and allowing that game to slip through their fingers. What I'll be most interested in seeing is if Mike Budenholzer makes any of the inspired moves that we've seen Ty Lue make with the Clippers. I'm not counting on it, and I'm still of the belief that the Bucks can win even without them because of their matchup advantages. But the Hawks are not to be trifled with or taken too lightly. Just ask the Sixers. One programming note, I am going to be out of town this weekend, and so there may not be an episode, a timely episode, waiting for you on Monday maybe into the day on Monday before we get to the podcast that covers the weekend's events. Just an alert. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.